You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, in this episode, we go inside the huddle with tenor Andrew Morstein, who is set to star in Odyssey Opera's upcoming performance of Awakenings. The opera is by Tobias Picker, and Andrew reveals that he and Tobias are both members of a very exclusive club. And then another field report from PJ, who has a pro tip on how you can change your world. It changed his Plus two-minute drill. The shirt hits the fan in Hanover. <laughs> and the Sydney Opera House turns 50. Yikes. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify. You're going to click follow. Apple Podcasts. Just hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster. The OBS lapel pin. While supplies last... Just for sharing your own hot take, Oliver Camacho, how's life? Well, if you subscribe to Opera Now podcast, you might have noticed that there's a new episode in your feed. Uh, we're now getting to like the one every nine months. <laughs> Love it. I think Opera Box Score lapped <laughs> Opera Now like twice at this point. The, the granddaddy of them all will always be the granddaddy of them all. It's more of a granddaddy due to mobility issues at this point, I think. <laughs> exactly. My knees. Matt Cummings, what's happening? I, I'm just going to do some research to find where we can get you a dialect coach to work on that Australian <laughs> accent. Cause... That was just, I, yeah, I wish I could have that one back. Weston Williams. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, like, as someone who has such uh, oft-repeated uh, 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 mentions of his involvement with a certain small island nation, if yeah. that qualifies as a hate crime, your pronunciation of, of uh, 50 <laughs> uh, to all those Australians. Australians, let us know. Is George Cedarquist canceled? <laughs> No one even mentioned the Super Bowl, which was yesterday. We always record on a Monday, as you know. I watched the first half with the kids, but here's what I love about the Super Bowl. Of course, it's the halftime show. It's one of the busy, biggest spectacles in art making that we have in this country. Rihanna, there she was in that gorgeous ensemble. I don't know what else to call it. I will say it was this. Like a, it was like a tracksuit with like a pleather bustier or like Thank a... Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Maybe it yes. was actually a, like a plastic bustier. And it, it was... eventually had a cape yeah. that became cape. part of it, which, you yeah. know, all costumes really do need capes. Sorry. It was, no. it was definitely... Sure. It was red athleisure, I think is the best way to describe then, it. Thank you. And then there was all these moving platforms and dancers and what. I thought they were it iPhones because it was sponsored by Apple. Like you cannot, oh. could not be not reminded that this was Apple. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> we all missed it except for you, Oliver. <laughs> My favorite meme that I saw was uh, a side-by-side -side comparison of the halftime show and the final stage from Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> That's what it was I was a... thinking. <laughs> wow, I need to tell my son that. The other thing it reminded me of was the Villy Decker production of Traviata at the Met in 2012. Oh, real topical reference. <laughs> I don't see... Is it because of the red? I, I love Violetta double jumping across all the platforms it's be, it's in that production. It's because of the contrast of red and white. That's exactly it. Yeah. Well, it was yeah. either that or the final scene of Alice in Wonderland, but I'm not sure. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. 
Let's go inside the huddle. So today we are going to interview a tenor uh, who actually I know from his time at Northwestern University, but his career sort of accelerated very quickly beginning in 2019. And um, we're not going to include this clip um, in today's interview, but you should look up his Rossini challenges. So during COVID, if you remember, uh, Larry Brownlee started doing this thing on Instagram where he would sing a lick of coloratura and uh, present the challenge to other singers to sing the same lick. And Andrew Morstein actually participated in, in those challenges and it, it raised his profile <laughs> as a singer. So who knew? <laughs> uh, but right now we're going to listen to Andrew singing a little bit of Donizetti, uh, some rare Donizetti from the opera Les Martyrs. Uh, this is the aria Oui, j'irai dans le temple, mainly so we can hear the high E that finishes it. Just a little bit of my guest, Andrew Morstein, singing from Donizetti's opera, Les Martyrs. And for those of you who are counting, that was an E. <laughs> Just an E. <laughs> Welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So um, I guess the audience should know a little bit of backstory for me and you is that you went to Northwestern or the Bean and yes. School of Music, as it's called. And uh, I went to hear you sing uh, Tom Rakewell uh, as you were finishing up, I guess, was it your master's over there? Yeah, my master's. That's yeah. right. And uh, a mutual friend of ours said, oh, I really want you to, you know, give some advice or some like assurance to this tenor that I know, because I think he's great. And I just think he just needs that extra thing to like get over the hump and get his career started. So I went to go hear you sing. And I was like, what does he need from me? Like, he's got everything. Like, he's got great stage presence. He's got great teeth. He's got tone for days. And clearly... Thanks. The teeth his... is, the teeth are important. <laughs> yeah. And not long after you finished, uh, you find yourself in Vienna. At... So yeah. could you tell our, our audience how you ended up leaving North or leaving the Chicago area and getting, what is it, a fest contract? Or are you an ensemble singer over there? Yeah, exactly. It's a, a convoluted story. Um, and our dear mutual friend was right. I mean, at that time, I had, it was uh, 2019, I had been auditioning for company after company and not getting anything. And so I was really discouraged because I had changed my career path. Um, I entered into the opera industry in my master's at 28 years old, which is not old by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it was a risky thing to move my uh, partner and I to a new city and, and, and try things out. So I definitely needed words of encouragement and yours help. And that is to date my favorite role to sing. And I hope I get a chance to do it again. Um, so yeah, I ended up studying at Northwestern in my master's program. It's a great, great program, a beautiful um, campus and music school if anybody gets a chance to check it out. 
and studied with some great folks. Alan Darling was my coach there, and he and I forged a great connection. Um, studied with Steve Smith and Karen Brunson and uh, got a great opportunity to do some roles. And I think I had done 22 auditions from fall of 2019 into February of 2020. And I got no's from every single place. And then I flew to Vienna because I was actually in the uh, Wiener Staatsoper Studios first finals. Um, they have a, a studio for young artists and I made the finals and we thought it was gonna be a sure thing. Um, that didn't end up working out, but I got a call um, from uh, an agent who was representing me at the time. And he said, look, I know you you flew to Vienna all this way um, and it's not gonna work out with the Staatsoper for X, Y, and Z reason. Uh, go across the street and sing for Teatro de Wien. Um, they do a little bit more edgy stuff and they also do a lot of Baroque. And this was my last day in Vienna. Um, I had been sleeping at 1130 in the morning for a four o'clock flight and I got the phone call and I walked, you know, half a mile over to Teatro de Wien, barely awake. And they asked me to open with Amezami, um, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> um, and that was a good uh, a harbinger of uh, how my two years went there. It was fast and furious. And uh, long and short, I got the call a few days later and got the contract to basically be in what's called the youngest ensemble or young ensemble. So I was doing lead roles or big roles um, on a smaller chamber opera stage or sort of more compromari roles on their big stage, um, like Spoletta in Tosca, for example. Um, and that was a really intense situation because um, as one can imagine, I got that call uh, I think March 1st, 2020. Oops. And I sent in my countersigned contract on March 11th or 12th. And then, you know, the world shut down. And um, another story, if you wanted to go into it, as your call is uh, figuring out how to get your visa secured when no government office in either country is open or available was a uh, very special hell. Uh, okay, but I no. made it. I do want to hear. I do want to hear that story. Um, I do want to hear about what it's like to navigate those things. I don't know how is your yeah. German. How is your German, by the way? Ich glaube, das ist gut. Okay. Was it good? Was it good before you did this program? This Junga uh, thing that you're talking it about. Depends who you ask now. If it's if 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 somebody thinks it's good now, but okay. I will say um, I spoke not a lick of German. Okay. And in March of 2020, when I found I was getting this contract, uh, because Northwestern's on the quarter system, I still yeah. had like a whole like semester, basically. Yeah. And I took intensive German and learned A1 and A2, which is like beginner German. Yeah. And then throughout that summer, I studied privately and on my own. And uh, after two years now, I would say I'm pretty conversational at a, at a high intermediate level. Okay, so let's we'll talk about like the logistics uh, and getting a visa really quickly. But I have to ask you now that you are, you know, three years away from that uh, acceleration of your career. Can you now identify what you were missing in those 19 other auditions? What was the thing that you didn't do or that they didn't hear from you? Because maybe in retrospect, oh, yeah, you know what? Maybe at this point, I didn't give them this piece of it, you know? That's a great question. I have no idea. Um, and I, I never know what they're thinking on the other end of that table. And it seems like it's always a crapshoot and random. Um, 
there are of course things I look back on and think like, oh, technically that was not great. Um, and I think I just wanted it too much at the time. And what's funny about that audition Vienna is I was so jet lagged and I knew nothing about the theater, um, which was very naive of me. And I just had this bravado walking in saying like, I don't know anything about, they asked me if I knew about the program, about the theater. And I had to say like, I have no idea, but I'm here and I want to sing for you. And I just didn't care. <laughs> so maybe like, that's what, okay. So let's be, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe like the other 19 auditions, because uh, let me tell you, when I hear you sing, it's like you are like jumping off the stage or jumping out of your clothes. Like you are just like so in your face. Like when you sing, when I heard you sing Tom Rake, I was like, how could you not want this guy? Because he has so much charisma and he's got so very much sound. It's no, you're just like a very generous, maybe too generous of an artist. You know, it's like, here I am, you know? And maybe yeah. on that, maybe on that day, you were like, I'm a little tired. I don't care about this theater. I don't know what you are. And maybe you just like held back a little bit or just like were a little bit more aloof, for lack of a better word, you know, in that audition. And maybe that's what it was. Maybe you come off as too much. Could be. And I was like super loose and just, I was just like, I was so tired of getting rejected constantly yeah. that I just said like, you know, F it, you know, yeah. screw it. I, I'm here. And we were making jokes and it was going really well. And yeah. I just left thinking like, all right, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, like I'll figure something else out or I'll just yeah. go at it another couple of years and see what happens. And, and yeah, plus, I just, plus you had a good time with them. It sounded like. <laughs> Yeah, we had a really great time and the team there was really great. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for that experience as difficult as it was. Okay. Well, so the story about you, um, like trying to figure out how to get a visa when there are no offices open, I feel like that's actually a great story, but I want our audience to hear what it's like to enter into a program like that and what are the expectations and maybe what do you bring as an American? Because I know there's like this idea about Americans and their technical ability, but not their stylistic knowledge, for example. And if you, if any of that like rings true to you, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very different style of working. That is for sure. Like anytime you have a new production in most European houses, or at least in Austrian and German houses, you have like five or six weeks of rehearsal. And then you might be doing shows for two weeks plus. Um, and so there's a very intensive character process. There's a very intensive um, production period. I would say technically I was quite ready for that challenge. And I had a very high level of preparation because when I went to my undergrad at Indiana, we learned like a very intense way to prepare roles. And so I sort of enter all my contracts trying to know the role back in, you know, like the back of my hand. And so I would say, um, that was really helpful because in that program, we were doing big roles on a smaller stage, but I was doing a lot of them. Uh, I think last year I did seven or eight roles in the same amount of months. Um, and we're talking Almaviva and Barbara Seville. We're talking a uh, lead role in two contemporary or modern American pieces that were quite complex or English speaking pieces, I should say. Um, I was doing Spoletta and Tosca and everything's happening all at the same time, concerts. Um, and so the pace of working is really intense. And so while you're very lucky or I felt very lucky to have like a constant steady job and I was getting to try out all these roles, um, it also developed in me a sense that like, okay, if I mess something up on stage, which happens, 
right? Like we're all human. Um, I've had plenty of notes that I really want back and still want back. Um, <laughs> and I don't know a singer that doesn't feel that way. Um, but then you just say like, okay, well, I got another seven of these. And I always felt like, okay, by the time I got to my fifth show, I was like, oh, this is what I wish people saw on opening night. So that ability to just get reps in was was huge. I would say stylistically, it is quite different. Um, and, in, and I would say for me, the biggest challenge was the acting challenge. Uh, because I would say at least German speaking houses, I can't speak to Spanish speaking houses, Italian speaking, French speaking houses. The style of role interpretation and drama is very different than what we're used to in America from my experience. And so it was a lot about how much less can I do and, uh, you know, transmit the same message and be more focused. And for me, that was one of the greatest lessons. And it's still something I work on. How can I find my character in a smaller way and do a little bit less? And it's like, I always like it to food because I love food and I love cooking. Um, you know, a great chef takes simple things and makes them in a way that you hadn't thought about or just taste incredible. And I think great singers do that. So that's what hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm on that journey now. So, yeah, I think it comes back to the story of you just being so much and like learning how to just focus it, you know, and yeah. uh, being more specific, I guess, in that case. Um, another thing that, that I've been watching happen with you is just this community of the tenors who sing ab above <laughs> yeah. high C. Yeah. And I love that uh, Larry Brownlee, friend of the show, uh, had those like Rossini challenges a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some people probably heard your name for the first time because there you were, whatever, doing a run from Zelmira or whatever, you know, that goes up yeah. to a high. You know, so, um, yeah, did you, we talked before uh, we started recording about your uh, relationship or mentorship with uh, Michael Spires and, and Larry Brownlee. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Larry was how I discovered opera, period. Like I saw him sing, uh, I, I know exactly which video it is. If you look up Larry singing in the Rosenblatt recitals, I think it's from like 15 years ago. Um, he sang a mezzami in a way that I, I, I was just like, the hair was tingling on my arm. Like it, it was, he was still kind of, um, I wouldn't say he was coming up because he was really established at that time, yeah. but he was a newer major name, I would say. And now he's been doing it, you know, for a while and he's like a household opera name. Um, and so that excitement and that color in his voice and the range he has with the relative ease is just like, it blew my mind. So the fact that I can call him like a, a colleague or a mentor or somebody that I just have the ability to chat with from time to time kind of blows my mind. Um, but he um, and Mike are people I, I look to um, and they're very generous with their time and their advice. And um, I will continue to, to go to them when I can and when they're able to help me. Um, and those challenges were great because we were locked down and everybody was looking for some way to express themselves. And I, I don't know if it's because all Rossini tenors are neurotic, which I think could, could be, um, but we need um, some way to kind of, you know, sing and, and have people hear it. And maybe that's all of us. But 
it was really, really fun. And I just, I was having a glass of white wine uh, after a rehearsal and I said, okay, I'll do this. And I was able to learn it really fast and put it up and it got a little bit of traction such that, that it was. And that was really fun for me because yeah, I mean, like I, I would say I even got an agency and gained a small initial following from doing those videos because uh, no one knew who I was. And I still think most people don't know who I am now, but like, you know, I was showing like I'm here and I just also enjoy doing it. And so that was really cool to connect with those guys. And um, yeah, I, I will be forever thankful for that. Well, can you time. talk up, can you talk about being picked up by IMG? What was that? Like, was that a surprise as well? Or had it been, you know, after doing this Vienna gig, he's like, Oh, I, I really need to start, you know, figuring out how to, what the next step is. I, I don't even know how that happens to somebody. Yeah, and and I think every singer that I've spoken to says something different, and I don't really know what to tell people about getting an agent. It is a, um, it is every path in, in in relationship seems to develop differently. I will say that I had been looking for representation since I started grad school because I entered at a more, um, I guess, a more mature age, quote unquote. I was twenty eight, you know. I, I had very specific goals and sort of like I knew that I needed to get into an A house young artist program and get an agent if I was going to have an international career, which I'm still working on. And so I had connected with a, a good friend of mine, Laura Wildey, who's an excellent soprano, Ryan Opera Center alum, and a beautiful person and an incredible voice. She was kind of saying, oh, there's this person at IMG who's kind of starting out in Germany. And so uh, Ashley Toure, who's my general manager, and I had sort of communicated for a couple of years and hadn't met. I get to Vienna, I record some new videos and, and sent them to her. And things kind of snowballed from there. Um, I had kind of at the same time been doing these uh, videos on Instagram and putting a lot of content out there that was genuine for me. I just enjoyed doing it. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, she she bit and said, yeah, I believe in you. And Sam Snook is my U.S. guy and North American guy, and we're very close. Um, and that whole team has just been really incredible to me. And um, we have sort of a, a vision, but um, I don't know if I would say I was surprised in the sense that I, I was really shooting for them. It's, to me, they're the gold standard. And, um, you know, I was just, I'm really thankful and grateful to be on that roster with some amazing names. So you're in Vienna and you're doing all of the, you know, seven roles in seven months. Um, and then um, 2022, can you, we talk about uh, something that put a pause? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think anybody that, um, if anybody's followed anything for me in the past year, and I, I don't know how many people there are out there, all five of you or 10 of you, who knows, but um <laughs> That's our entire um, audience. Yeah. Hey, listen, I appreciate them being here. Um, I was born with um, a heart defect. And basically, I was at a routine checkup. I was in the middle of a run of my last role in May of 2022 last year. And the cardiologist said, you need surgery. And I said, that can't be right. <laughs> We're doing all this in German, by the way. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm either misinterpreting him or this is a very grave situation. So I got a second opinion from somebody and they said, yeah, like this is quite serious. Um, you need to be operated upon as quickly as possible. And in Austria, that was about six weeks. So I had to stop performing immediately because my 
heart valve, my aortic valve basically had calcified so much that I was barely getting oxygenated blood. And I had no idea. I was deadlifting 300 pounds two weeks prior to finding this out and climbing hills. And I felt fine. Um, but that's the way heart stuff works. Uh, see your cardiologist, everybody. <laughs> um, and um, it was easily the most harrowing time of my life. I'm really grateful for the support that I got from friends and family and strangers, honestly. Um, my fiance, who is an incredible person and occupational therapist, came out. My family came out. I had open heart surgery. Everything was a success. Um, in Europe, in, in, in Austria. In Vienna. Okay. And if you, it, you know what? I do recommend open heart surgery for anybody that wants to, uh, in, in Austria, for anybody that wants to improve their German, because uh, nothing gets your German better than having to be hopped up on all kinds of drugs and, and ask for what you need in German to the nurses. It's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I learned how to, I learned how to walk again. I learned, I lost my voice for three weeks and I really thought a couple times, like, you know, this is it for me. And we didn't know, um, it was a complex surgery and we didn't know what was going to happen on the other end of this. Um, and being intubated comes with complications. And, um, I retaught myself how to sing that Le Martyr clip that you played at the beginning was two and a half months after I was on an, uh, an operating table. And with the help of my teacher, Jason Ferrante, um, we got there and, uh, you know, six months later, I'm singing a major role again. And honestly, I, I never would have imagined it would have happened. Um, but I, I worked my ass off and, um, yeah, it was the craziest experience of my life. So do you have like a, whatever, something holding open your artery now, like a little, uh, piece of PVC in your, in your, in your artery now? I just got sewage pipe in there, you know, it's all just, <laughs> yeah, so, but actually, yes. So, um, my surgery is quite complicated. It's called a Ross procedure and they basically grafted my pulmonary valve onto my aortic valve since my pulmonary valve is and was healthy. And I have a decellularized or completely sanitized, um, cadaver valve in place of my pulmonary oh. valve. Okay. So now I'm actually dead inside, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a fun joke. I like to make just to lighten things up when I'm talking about heart surgery with people. Like, oh, that's so serious. It's like, yeah, it was, but now I'm really dead inside. Um, so, but I'm really thankful and it was a great team there. And um, I mean, realistically, had I not discovered that, you know, I, I would have been looking at uh, the end of my life one day without knowing it. And so, yeah, it was wild. So the career aside, I was happy to be alive and I am happy to be here on this planet. And uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. Well, here is a very hard pivot, but uh, when I look at your website, uh, I see that you also do um, arranging for male acapella ensemble. Yeah. And was that what you, when you said you did a career change, like in your twenties, were you going to be a pop singer or like a... Yeah, I was. Like, I yeah. was a successful acapella singer. And I say successful, I mean, I definitely was also waiting tables and bartending. Um, <laughs> I, like, was doing it. Uh, I was in a touring male acapella group in the early 2010s acapella craze. Yeah. Um, but I also have arranged for Straight No Chaser, which is a very well-known ensemble. Um And, uh yeah, that's what I was doing. I was also a sommelier. I am a... A sommelier with multiple certifications. Oh wow! Um, and what learned how to bartend and learned all these other trades. And so, 
yeah, I, I was also did some backup singing in Nashville. We lived there for a few years. And so, yeah, I, I got back into singing opera, which I have a, an undergraduate degree in. Um, in about 2017, I was living in Nashville and thought, you know, I think I have something with this opera stuff. And I started studying again and joined the Nashville Opera Course part time and um, met some great folks there. I was like in the chorus of Carmen and met Ginger Costa Jackson and Ed Parks and, nice. you know, these great singers and befriended them. And um, Ed's still a good buddy of mine. And um, yeah, it was a, a really interesting time. And then I would say from 2017 to 2020 was like my uh, re-entry learning period of trying to figure out like, how do I sing again? Um, but yeah, my roots are in musical theater, pop, soul, R&B, that kind of stuff. So hmm. I, I will forever always love non-classical music as my kind of home so how much distance is there between graduating from your undergrad was you said at iu yes and then mm -hmm. uh going back to grad school i graduated iu in 2012 and then i started at northwestern in 2018 so about six years okay so i think that's useful i think for especially for tenors like yeah some, sometimes it just takes a minute you know for the technique to be you know, solidified and for tone to come in, you know? I think uh, so. And like around 30, everything kind of shifts, or mm -hmm. at least it did for me. Like a different color started coming in. It felt like the second puberty. I was also cracking all the time. So I'm glad I was in grad school at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now you're uh, in Boston uh, yeah. singing with uh, Odyssey Opera. Uh, you're yes. you're about let's say next weekend you'll be singing uh, the uh, northeast premiere uh, of Awakenings the um, yeah Oliver Sacks opera by Tobias Picker and uh, so we'll close with uh, plugging that but you wanted to mention that you have something in common with Tobias Picker which is like complete out of the blue but hey let's talk about it yeah absolutely so um, a wonderful transition to close <laughs> us out I would say is. Um, yes, yeah, so we have a performance on February 25th. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say the bigger reason we're here, all here, but uh, the big project we have after that one performance is we are doing the original cast recording. And it's an amazing cast. Um, and uh, so some amazing singers on that. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. And that's with BMOP Sound, Gil Rose, um, who's a Grammy-winning conductor. And uh, we hope that we're on that short list for next year, but uh, we're going to focus on making the music. Um, but so Tobias and I connected because uh, about a year plus ago, I was doing a different show of his in Vienna in a really wild production. Um, there's a clip of, of me singing the aria online. Um, it's a show called Therese Rican, and I played uh, somebody who gets killed on stage and then becomes a ghost. And um, so he and I started connecting that way. And then we both found out that we're both um, Jews that have Tourette syndrome in classical music. <laughs> Um, so if, it, it's like, it's all these things yeah. that, um, when, so, so when I met Tobias, I met him for the first time about four months ago in person, we had chatted before. Um, but it's qu quite a rare thing to have Tourette syndrome. Um, and, um, then to also have these other things in common was just wild. And so for me, he's kind of like a kindred spirit and we just, we chat a lot about dealing with Tourette's on stage. And in this production, I use my tics um, because these patients were had Parkinsonian-like tics. Um, 
and I learned how to walk, which is something I experienced six months ago. And hmm. so he called me and asked me if I would do it. And I was honored. And um, I think it's the best work I've done to date because it's so personal to me. And I love Tobias's writing and I believe in his work. I think he's one of the best American composers we've ever had. And I hope that we get to do it more. So, yeah. Well, um, that's a lot, but uh, thank you for yeah. sharing that. I don't know if there's <laughs> if you guys have started a Facebook group for other uh, Jewish classical musicians with Tourette's syndrome to join. Yeah. But, uh... If you're somebody out there, give us a call because there's only two of us that I know of at the moment. <laughs> We'd love uh, to bring you into the fold. We're a fun group. So the performance is February 25th, uh, yes. Odyssey Opera, and then we'll all have a chance to hear it when uh, the recording is released. Uh, yes. We will we will uh, close right now with um, a little bit more music. I forget what did what are we about to hear again? Yeah, this is the ghost aria um, from Therese Rican. He's been killed by his um, ex uh, wife and her lover, and he comes back to haunt them with high bees. <laughs> nice and de yeah. dead in and dead inside. Dead inside and outside. <laughs> it's great. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Morstein, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Thanks for having me, Oliver. I love this show and love what uh, love this conversation. So thank you. A performance of Tobias Picker's Therese Raquin from January of 2022 from Theater an der Wien in der Oper, where Andrew Morstein had his stint in the ensemble. Thanks so much to Andrew for being such a guest and being such an open book about his health problems and about that very exclusive club that he belongs to. George, you belong to any club <laughs> as a Jew? Do you belong to any clubs like that? Not that I can talk about. Okay. <laughs> They're too exclusive. I know you'd have to kill me. <laughs> we don't talk about um, Tourette's Club. <laughs> right after we taped the show last week, LeBron James became the NBA's leading all-time scorer. Uh, the Lakers lost to the Oklahoma City Thunder, but LeBron James now has 38,390 career regular season points beating Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That was a 34-year-old record. It's likely that LeBron James's record may never be beaten. I was surprised that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record was beaten in my lifetime, and that got me thinking about opera records. And I, I spent many a late night trying to figure out, like, the metrics from LeBron, you know, points scored, minutes played, <laughs> number of seasons, and trying to equate that in some way to opera. And I failed. I will put a great article in the LA Times on the website. We were going to try to have like an operatic parallel here. And um, if I were to throw one like data point out, which is probably yes. no, lo no longer true, but I think that Arlene OJ, who died tragically at age 53, uh, I think at the time that she died, she was the most recorded soprano of all okay. time. I think she had like 200 hmm. recordings to her name at that point. And not like solo records, like she 
you know, she's saying on this Bach cantata, she's saying this, whatever. A lot of Bach cantatas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what about like, like, like some of like the really early Caruso recordings where they had to do like the same aria, you know, 20 times in one day. I feel like that might be no, cheating count, a little bit. Don't. Doesn't count. I will say there is one very definitive parallel and it really pains me to say this. But um, if you all remember our final episode with uh, Dallas Opera Network, I believe the Who? leading What's opera that? luminary in Games of Horse um, uh, <laughs> is is unfortunately Oliver Camacho. So I do think he wins this one. And since we'll never be on Dallas Opera Network again, I think that record will stand unchallenged. See, and I thought the your record you were going to talk about was about reading a new story where everyone in it was taller than you. the other option i guess you could look at like number of minutes that lebron has played on the court versus number of minutes that somebody has been in in an opera on stage but then again opera really gives too much too much preference to people who sing tristan and as old exactly Mm -hmm. but you know there's one of those an nba is 40 nba game is 48 minutes long so there's one of those Comper Mario tenors who's had like a 50 year career who is. Yeah, Anthony Lachura has sung like yeah. a thousand different roles at the Met. That's not the real number. Don't <laughs> add me. But it's like a lot of different <laughs> roles. If you have an idea of a metric that can compare opera to LeBron James, let us know. Operaboxcore at gmail.com. That's how these folks in the listener mailbag also reached out. Yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag. PJ in New York City has corresponded many a time for us. I, I, I see PJ calls himself, he says, for Opera Box Score. <laughs> like, okay, he is like, really, he is he really thinks, stepping up to the plate. You know, just, we need I someone on the New York initiative. beat, so. <laughs> Does he think that we do 1099s over here? We don't. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be lucky. Uh, he went to uh, Song Studio at the end of January at Carnegie Hall. This is what he had to say. Hello, Opera Box Score. This is PJ. The sounds of the Long Island Railroad in the background. It's early Saturday morning, and I wanted to report to you just an experience I had this week that was unbelievable. The opera season is dark for the month of February in New York. I didn't know what I was going to do. And there was this thing called Song Studio, run by Renee Fleming at Carnegie Hall in the Wild performance space. And I saw the performances. I went uh, throughout the week to see Golda Schultz lead in a masterclass, Jamie Barton, Hartmut Hohl, and Renee Fleming. It was an incredible week. I got to meet all of these people, mind you. They were just delightful. We had young artists, emerging artists from all over the world that were there. Some just incredible singers, by by the way. Uh, Young singers with tremendous gifts. And we reworked and worked and reworked again art song leader not any arias per se but it was just a a deep immersion into the pieces you listen to a piece you may have a handle on it and then you start to really understand it musically as well as thematically as the artists start to work together right before your very eyes one of the great experiences i've ever had in my life they do this every year the song studio program at carnegie hall Uh, i'm going to go next year and bring a whole troop of people it's not to be missed, this kind of thing. If anyone has an opportunity to see a masterclass, please do. It will change your world. It changed mine. Love reporting to you all from New York. This is PJ Ewing for Opera Box Score. Thanks very much, PJ, for that. Matt, it feels like you need to break 
some hard news to PJ. I don't even know, I don't know if it's hard news. I think that he's taken really the right takeaways here, which is that master classes, even though it seems like they're about the people on stage, they're really much more about the audience. Um, the in some ways there's like an amnesia from when you're singing for a big famous singer in a master class trying to fix things in a mini voice lesson in front of an audience like you get off the stage and you're like i survived i forget everything so really (laughs) like it's the joy of the audience to get to watch those things kind of happen in real time and um it definitely also helps that the second time you go through something it tends to be better just because you have gotten some of your nerves out uh unkinked well, I think Absolutely. it's also really cool too. Like I'm, I'm, I'm uh, on TikTok, and uh, uh, there's are there's, you ever? Uh, am I ever? Um, and uh, I've come across several videos of like rehearsal videos and masterclass videos where you uh, where that are you know relatively popular by you know classical music TikTok standards. Um, and uh, you'll see a lot of people in the comments uh, just being blown away by just the fact that someone can do like a master class, give a note or, or give a note to the orchestra if they're conducting um, that will actually perceptibly change the sound for them. Cause for a lot of people who, you know, are new to classical music, you know, they'll say it all sounds the same to me. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Um, but once they see the same thing twice in a row, see notes, they maybe don't get, um, but then see an improvement and like feel that improvement. That's really remarkable. And that's, you know, I, I feel like it could be, I don't know how to market master classes to like non-classical music people, but I think there's there's definitely an untapped potential there in terms of bringing our art form to the uh, the unwashed masses, so to speak. I'll just say that um, PJ is feeling something uh, going to these things that I felt too, which is like, oh, this is actually how art works and we do have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And when when we talk about, you know, the building blocks, it helps us understand the larger form. And that's what makes, you know, this such a world changing experience is that they understand a little bit more the music and they they enjoy it more as a result. And I do think that there's an opportunity here for audience um, inclusion, audience, you know, reach outreach with these types of events. Uh, and there are some people who are very good at it who really, you know, say things that are trenchant and that are entertaining and that also benefit the person who's under the gun. And it is really difficult to be, you know, somebody who's worked on in public, like Matt says. <laughs> like, yeah, it's going to sound yeah. better because you got two chances, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, it is it is a fairly mystical art form that we work on. and. To have it demystified, as you say, Oliver, to, to kind of show people how the sausage is made a little bit, I think has merit. What frustrates me about these workshops as a director is that these, and they are typically singers, they never talk about acting in any remotely helpful way. Uh, I disagree. You haven't been to the right master classes, so. I don't know. <laughs> I, I watched a clip of Renee doing her thing on this one, and yeah. it wasn't. Okay, that's, well, then you've seen all of them then, so. <laughs> Gretchen in New York City writes, I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, somehow through strange life choices. I'm the company nurse for the Met Opera. Oh, wow. Most of my day consists of handing out ibuprofen and Band-Aids and knitting. I care for everyone in the company and audience. There's always a doctor in the house during performances, but 
I'm there during the weekdays and Saturdays. Then she adds, thrilled about the Grammy Award for Fire. Matthew O'Coin will probably get one before he's 40, but mm. his time will come. I love this little window into sort of how the Met runs. When I first read Gretchen's note, handing out ibuprofen, band-aids, and knitting, I thought she was handing out all of those things. It, <laughs> it's too bad that she won't get a chance to sit in the dressing room with Joan Sutherland and knit during Magic Flute. Famously, <laughs> that's what queens of the night do in between their two arias. <laughs> I think this is really cool. I would love to have Gretchen on for like maybe maybe an inside the huddle or even just like a, a free throw segment, because like knowing the nurses that I do and knowing opera insiders as I really do, there are always really good stories. Uh, the the hot goss combining those two together, that potential just like is is so tantalizing to me. I can't help but think of the amazing stories that we could hear and violate violate HIPAA regulations with. Yeah, somebody swallowing maybe a fishbone in the uh, canteen and <laughs> not able to go on for the performance. <laughs> she must feel great, of course, post-Super Bowl, right, to be on the winning team. I know. Thanks for hopping on the KC Express with George and me as we rocketed to victory. (laughs) Just one more thank you to the city of Kansas City for uh, not making me celebrate Philadelphia in any way. So welcome aboard, Gretchen. That was that was my prayer on Sunday night. Was it was not having to endure (laughs) winning Philly fans. Actually, I bet you Tobias Wright of this show of yesteryear is probably thrilled. (laughs) Enemy of the show. Again, send us a voice memo or just email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And right now, you're going to get the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. Okay, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. This October, Sydney Opera House will celebrate the 50th anniversary of its opening. The world-renowned design by Jorn Utzen was supposed to be completed in 1963, but the complexity of it caused a 10-year delay. It instantly became the signature of Sydney's skyline, even though Sydney was not then, nor is now, a world center of opera. Holy crap. Hanover State Opera Ballet director Marco Gurke has been suspended after he smeared dog excrement in the face of Vipka Huster, a dance critic who had left a negative review. Huster said that she would go back to reviewing ballet as soon as she can. Quote, I'm a professional. I will go back to my work. George Benjamin has been awarded the 2023 Ernst von Siemens Music Prize. Benjamin is one of the most important composers of his generation and has written operas such as Written on Skin and Lessons in Love and Violence. The award comes with a prize of 250,000 euro. More like George Benjamin's, am I right? (laughs) In trade news, Gustavo Dudamel has announced that he will leave Los Angeles Philharmonic to become the next music director of the New York Phil. Starting a five-year contract in 2026, he said, quote, I gaze with joy and excitement at the world that lies before me in New York City. Boston Lyric Opera has launched an international search for a new artistic director. To expand the leadership team in partnership with general director and CEO Bradley Vernatter and music director David Angus. Esther Nelson stepped down from the role in 2021 when Bernadette took on the responsibilities in an acting capacity prior to his ascension to the general director position. 
Deutsche Oper Berlin has announced that Swiss conductor Aviel Kahn will be the company's next intendant, succeeding Dietmar Schwarz. Kahn, the current intendant of the Grand Theater de Genève, is trained as pianist, singer, and stage director, and also received his PhD in law from the University of Zurich. What an overachiever, guys. Exit stage right, director Jürgen Flem, who led some of Europe's most important theaters. His death at 81 was announced by the Staatsoper Berlin, where he was intendant from 2010 to 2018. Flim's career also included leadership at the Thalia Theater in Hamburg, the Ruhr Triennial, and the Salzburg Festspiele. Conductor Julian Smith has died at age 78. Smith is best known for his work with the Cardiff Singer of the World competition, where he began working in 1983 as one of the official accompanists, before eventually becoming responsible for selecting the competitors from among over 5,000 applicants, starting in 1993. Outside of his work for Cardiff, Smith was head of music at Welsh National Opera for 21 years. Writer Matthew Rye has died at age 60. Rye worked in music journalism for 30 years as a critic and editor for such outlets as The Daily Telegraph, BBC Music Magazine, The Strad, The Wagner Journal, and Opera Magazine. He was also the general editor of 1001 classical recordings you must hear before you die. And on this day, February 13th, in 1666, Antonio Cesti's Il Tito premiered in Venice. In 1725, Handel's Rodolinda premiered, starring soprano Francesca Cuzzoni in London. 1740 saw the birth of soprano Sophie Arnaud, a French soprano who created the role of Iphigenia in Gluck's opera Iphigenia en Olide. 1815 saw the birth of mezzo-soprano Rosina Stoltz, who created the role of Leonora in Donatetti's La Favorita and Desdemona in Rossini's Otello. In 1873, Russian bass and OBS Hall of Famer Fedor Shalyapin was born. Happy birthday to, <laughs> we celebrate the birthday of Ukrainian-born American-based Alexander Kipnis, born this day in 1891. In 1914, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, also known as ASCAP, was founded. In 1920, soprano Eileen Farrell was born in Connecticut. In 1921, French soprano René Doria was born. In 1926, we saw the first performance of Arthur Honegger's Judith, the revised version. In 1929, tenor Anton de Ritter was born in Amsterdam. In 1938, Johanna Meyer, a Chicago-born soprano, was born. And happy birthday to mezzo-soprano Anna Steiger, born this day in Los Angeles in 1960. That's your two-minute drill.
That was the birthday girl Eileen Farrell singing To This We've Come, otherwise known as The Papers Aria from Minotti's The Console. That's on one of her recital discs. Um, I would describe myself as ambivalent about Minotti at best, but this, I think, is about <laughs> as good as it gets because she sings the ever-loving poop out of this aria. <laughs> like, it's just so good. It's the... funny that you use the word poop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, My stomach turns when I read this. I just, like... I, I really feel ill on this story. Yeah, it was so. So apparently, she she wrote a negative review, a, a very negative Vip, review. Vipka Huster, right? This dance critic yes, yes. in Hanover. Um, yeah. And I I do understand as someone who has been on stage, negative reviews hurt a lot, and I think that sometimes they can be. Yeah, but you deserved them. Uh, it's true. I mean, you're not wrong. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but but like you know, I think there is something very to be said about you know. Even like you need you need to be able to like let critics be critics and hope that uh, you know you have a good enough product so that people will see through the opinion sometimes. But apparently, what happened was he 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 basically cornered her um, and said, "Hey, why'd you leave me a negative review?" And she started a kind of you know talking, you know, I'm sure in a very awkward way because that in itself is very aggressive. And then he took a bag of literally dog poop and smeared it in her face, um, like which my is, stomach is tied in knots just hearing that described. Absolutely. Genuinely horrifying stuff. I want to read the latest statement here from Hanover Staatsoper. Um, They say, Marco Gurki's impulsive reaction to the journalist violated all the principles of conduct of the Hanover State Opera, I should hope so, and thus caused (laughs) extreme uncertainty among the audience, the employees of the company, and the general public, to say the least. In doing so, he has massively damaged the State Opera and the Hanover State Ballet. Therefore, the theater management suspended him with immediate effect and bans him from the house until further noticed in order to protect the ballet ensemble and the state theater from further damage. Uh, and I believe there's also been a criminal uh, investigation open against him from the Hanover police as well, which seems justified. <laughs> Notice he still has his job, though. Like, for now. Like he was fi- for now. Well, Obviously, it's, it's he's Europe, get... so Yeah, it's Europe, right? It's like... <laughs> And it's and in ten years, some opera fired. director is going to do a production of Parsifal about this. It's right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. but just, I mean, it's going to be chocolate mousse. But they're still going to. They're do talking it. about, um, you know, the uh, principles of conduct. But maybe we need to start explicitly stating in our, you know, employee handbooks, and you shall not smear excrement <laughs> on yeah, any detractors. Show me where it says that I can't do this. <laughs> Truly horrifying. I really hope that she recovers. Oh. You know, she seems to be, you know, talking pretty positively about it. But like, it, I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. Like, you know, the grossness of it aside, like this was like an assault full on. Like, you know, I oh. this is short of like, you know, causing a bodily injury. I can't imagine something much worse than this happening to me oh sydney opera house turns 50 ah uh, yeah you want to try that again in an australian accent yeah, i definitely i definitely do not <laughs> have, have you have you seen the bluey episode when they go to the sydney opera house the bluey episode no we don't have children george <laughs> so we don't have to watch that well because i don't think there is one but i would love to see bluey go to the sydney opera house I think the Sydney Opera House is so fascinating. Uh, obviously, architecturally, it is so iconic. It is probably the most iconic opera house in the world. 
it is definitely the most iconic piece of architecture in Sydney and Australia at large. Um, it's such an iconic building, meant to look like you know a a giant sailboat in the in Sydney Harbor. Um, however, it is an absolute disaster as an actual opera house. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. like as soon as I like you know I remember when I was a really young kid, you know, just getting into opera for the first time, and I saw the Sydney Opera House. I'm like, wow, that's that's like my art form. So exciting! Like that that was the first. First thing I learned that there's this glorious opera house. The second thing I learned about it from my dad was like, yeah, the acoustics suck. You know, I mean, it's it really is um, one of those uh, buildings that I think encapsulates a lot of what was wrong in that era of opera house design and in, is wrong today in terms of the culture of wealth surrounding opera houses, the idea that opera is a great way to show off the opulence of the society from which, which it comes. You see this a lot in uh, China nowadays, a lot of the new opera houses, just these incredibly expensive, uh, wild, wild-looking buildings um, and often the actual art form itself inside is neglected. You know, um, uh, we right. talked about this uh, a while ago. They finally fixed the acoustics in their concert hall mm -hmm. just this past year. But it was but really expensive and took It was forever. really expensive. Yeah. And it was it was very much form over function. I mean, even to some extent, you know, um, around yes. the same era you saw in the Link in Lincoln Center, the less good acoustics in the Met Opera House. Uh, compared to the the old Met and the um, frankly abysmal acoustics of where of uh, uh, where New York Philharmonic made its home, um, there was there was this trend of like money and visual spectacle of the outside of the building, with very little consideration of that the was, art and, on the inside. And that was part of the downfall of uh, New York City Opera too. Mm -hmm. Was mm -hmm. the renovations to the what was then the New York State Theater and is now the Coke Theater? I think. Um, yeah. And it, it really stands in contrast to like more recent construction projects like the Elbe Philharmonie is what comes mm -hmm. to mind, which has a mm -hmm. similar like symbiosis with the environment and nature around it because it's supposed to look like the waves on the River Elbe. That's the concert hall in um, Hamburg. Is that the right city? Yes, um, I believe so. But inside, like it's state of the art acoustics and it actually yeah. sounds amazing. Like, yeah, in oh, pretty Germans, stark contrast. They got it right. Yeah, it it, it is. It, I mean, I love a good architecture feat of architectural engineering as much as the next guy, if not more so. Um, but I do think that there's definitely something to be examined when we're talking about new places with classical music, where you also have the the the, the dauntingness of a building like that to someone who doesn't know anything about the art form. Um, they, you know, it's really. And it's and it's such an interesting phenomenon in Sydney specifically because it is so iconic, yet it is such a artistically almost um, – it's almost as if they didn't even really have an opera house at all sometimes, you know? And that I think is a shame. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I think it's just an interesting – case study for how money, power, architecture, and the arts all collide in sometimes not great ways. That's and I think it's true. something worth examining. Examining. True. Well, October 1st is the celebrations for the 50th. We'll see how that plays out. As a director, every so often, our business loses a legend. I remember Graham Vick dying of COVID. Of course, he ran the Birmingham Opera Company in England. Hans Neuenfels, I believe, died in, in 2022. And now as directors, we've lost Jürgen Flim. Jürgen Flim was one of the most phenomenal directors. He basically was at every major cultural 
institution in opera between Germany and Switzerland, which is saying a lot. It's just two countries, but that's that's as we know, that is the heart of of opera in Europe. I remember back in 2016 when I got to meet Jurgen and spend some time Drink. with him. I was uh, observing his production of Clemenza di Tito at the where was it? Was it Vienna? It's it's all kind of a blur, Weston. You know, <laughs> that's really um, fascinating content for everyone listening to this episode, George. <laughs> Here's what I will say. Here's what I remember about him. He was a total chain smoker. We sat in the cantina, him and his assistant and myself. And he was like, oh, cool. He lit up a cigarette. He's like, so you're from America. Let's talk like, he wanted to talk about American pop culture a lot. Um, and then I asked him some questions about the biz. And he basically tried to convince me to get out of opera directing. He was like, <laughs> it's it's not worth it. It's it's a horrible life. Don't, if there's anything Let me tell you, do. George, you, the real money's in podcasting. It, you it, gotta it is, get in. All I remember, and I was totally, um, you know, star shocked. Basically, I, I just like yeah, couldn't listen word. to anything, except just <laughs> watching him smoke these cigarettes and talk about opera. It was awesome. The Deutsche <laughs> Opera, of course, one of my other houses that I'm in love with has a new intendant. Drink. We should go back to the days of Kirsten Harms, when Kirsten Harms was friend of the show. By the way, when Kirsten Harms was running the Deutsche Oper. Before we uh, go to Good Call, Bad Call, uh, I just want to say that I have that book, uh, A Thousand and One Classical Recordings You Must Hear Before Do You, you Die. Do you really? And how many yeah. of them have you heard? How many of you read, Oliver, well, Mr. Smarty Pants? I will just say that it really came in handy when I found myself <laughs> in my current job. And you all know that all I listen to are things with, <laughs> with Vox Humana. And I had to learn about all the other repertoire. And um, yeah, just knowing Good for you. a thousand recordings that I probably should know, just reading and through one. it was, was super, well, I knew some of them already, but um, <laughs> so it was super helpful. So rest in peace, Matthew Rye, you saved my bacon. And um, yeah, Gustavo Dudamel, you know, uh, he conducts opera at LA Opera. So there is some uh, crossover content here, but, you know, he is sort of, he was the Klaus Mekela of his generation, and now he's moving on to one of the top American jobs. Uh, Surely the top. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Probably, yeah. yeah. Arguably. It's debatable. Yeah. Among the among the big five. Yeah, but it just seems like, I don't know, it's like he, uh, why can't he do both? And we remember this era where, you know, certain uh, artists slash administrators, like, had all the jobs, so... Uh, yeah, because that's, that's BS. Good for him for saying, you know what? <laughs> Let's give somebody else a bite at the apple. That's the yeah, kind of absolutely. spirit that I like. Well, speaking I think of that's kind of the kind of his brand too. You know, well, he's he's uh, he's very much about encouraging the the younger, the sort of youthful energy, if not the actually youthful, uh, in his work. And I think it's going to be really exciting uh, in New York. I, I look forward to it. Well, I invoked Klaus Mekela, who currently is the artistic director of um, or chief conductor of Oslo. And uh, artistic director or music director of Paris, and also was named future chief conductor of the Concertgebouw. So he'll have three jobs, three big jobs simultaneously, all in Europe, you know. And just maybe he'll have a job in Chicago. Who knows? They're they're hunting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On that note, yikes! Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right. Another OBS in the can. Good call, Lapping bad call. Lapping Opera Now. 
Just gonna, <laughs> Who? Your words, not mine. Oliver Camacho. So last Saturday, uh, the Met did this tribute to Franco Zeffirelli. And, you know, how do you pay tribute to Franco Zeffirelli in radio? It didn't make any sense, but it gave them an opportunity. I think the tribute to point. Franco Zeffirelli in, on an audio-only medium is hearing all the creaking in those decades-old sets. Yikes. To um, play some recordings that had not, or some performances that had not been heard in a while. Uh, it was uh, Grace Bumbry and Franco Corelli starring in Cavalleria Rusticana and uh, Richard Tucker and Teresa Stratus starring in Pagliacci. And it was late career Tucker. And they had a little interview segment with him where he talked about declining to sing Canio until he was good and ready to do it. And, uh, you know, he, you know, at the end of his career, he still had his chops and it was so dramatic and so well sung and not ugly, which that role can often resort to just ugliness. And so it was just thrilling to hear uh, that level of technique um, and that much interpretation in such a iconic tenor role. Uh, and hearing from Franco Corelli himself, who said, I mean, from Richard Tucker himself, who said, you know, I wasn't ready to do it earlier. It's now, you know, this makes us think like all these tenors who, um, you know, are rushing to sing mm -hmm. these major roles and what they are doing to their own careers and uh, not really even serving the opera by doing so. And I have to say that Franco Corelli sounded like a million bucks in mm -hmm. Cavalier Rusticana. And there was also a little story about Leonard Bernstein uh, slowing the Siciliana down at the very beginning of the opera. Does like, he have any other way to conduct? <laughs> <laughs> and how Franco Corelli was like, I can't sing it that so I can't. But he did. And it was amazing. So I just feel, I felt very lucky to just like stop what I was doing on set. Actually, I, it was one of those Saturdays where it's like, I was going to like go to the gym. I was going to do all these things, but it started playing. I was like, oh, I'm not leaving. I'm just going to clean the house and like listen to this because it was that <laughs> good. So. It's a great, it's a great Saturday. Matt Cummings. So when we were talking about Kansas City last week, we'd mentioned one of the native sons, Burt Bacharach, who two days later it was announced, had passed away. How about that? And in some of the eulogizing that came out afterwards, I went down the absolute wildest Wikipedia <laughs> rabbit hole that I've ever been down before. And I I don't actually know if this is going to be interesting to anyone other than me, but like I found this spider web of facts so bizarre that I had to share it with someone. And luckily, I have a platform for you all to be forced <laughs> to listen to me. Um, so Burt Bacharach, not only did he... Uh, was he the arranger and accompanist for Marlena Dietrich's nightclub act <laughs> before he became what? a big, important songwriter and wrote a million songs that you all know, even if you did, don't know he wrote them. He also studied composition with Darius Mio <laughs> <laughs> and then went on to collaborate like pretty, pretty extensively with uh, Dionne Warwick, Dionne Warwick, um, who insane. famously is the cousin to Whitney Houston. But not only are they cousins with each other, they are also distant cousins with Leontine Price, oh, whose birthday what? was last week. And the genetics in that family, just like, can <laughs> we crack the secret of musical talent? Like, it has to be in there somewhere. It's is this your Saturday that you're describing? Um, <laughs> it was like over several days okay. because this was much too much information to take in all at once. But... Um, yeah, there's there's a lot out there. Burt Bacharach's life was wild. Oh, my head is full. Weston Williams. 
Uh, if you know me, you know that I have uh, some complaints sometimes about the classic Cav Page combo, Cavalier Rusticana and Pagliacci being performed in the same evening. Right. They they don't feel like super congruent to me. I mean, I know they're both Verismo and around the same time Short. period, but they feel they, they they never quite work for me. And I feel like uh, opera companies like to change it up where they'll have like, we'll do Pagliacci, but we'll also do something from like, uh, you know, uh, Il Tabaro or something like that. And like, you know, I'm like, sure, sure. Um, but uh, Greek National Opera has an interesting uh, take on this formula. They are doing Johnny Skiki and Bluebeard's Castle, which is possibly the wildest combination of operas to hear in a single evening I can imagine. Two and if I was in Greece, trickery. I would go. <laughs> I guess. It's, it sounds great. I do, love it. Do you know which is first on that bill? I think it would really affect your evening, depending. I think it's Johnny Skiki first. I would, but not, gonna say, I would right. not start with that. The emotional whiplash of those two is really something conceptually. I'm actually not sure which one is a worse option to go for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you want to follow Skiki. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. I love the show Schmigadoon. We've talked. I've talked about it before on the show. A friend of mine told me that uh, the folks behind Schmigadoon are coming out with a new season, which is called Schmicago, based on the '60s and '70s musical theater gems, stuff by Candor and Ebb and so forth. When my friend told me this. I thought that the, he said the new season was called Schmicado. <laughs> well, thank God they're like, not doing that. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you serious? They're doing a whole season just on the operas of Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> in the format of Schmigadoon. He got too excited. I pretty much peed my pants. <laughs> if only. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS. Just use our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Matt Cummings, and our guest... Andrew Morstein, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you hand out ibuprofen, band-aids, and knitting. We're back <laughs> with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more smeared Join us.